Hello, and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I am Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC, is what we're doing. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Yes. Today we have an extra big issue of Sandman. Sandman issue 50. Ramadan. Who wrote this comic book? Why, Neil Gaiman wrote it. Who did the art for this comic book? The pencils and inks were by P. Craig Russell, and the colors were by Digital Chameleon. Okay. Is that a Mega Man (laughs) villain? (laughs) I I assume it's like an outfit, not a person. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, although we have a cover here by Dave McKeon. Yeah, it's Morpheus in front of some onion-domed buildings. Yeah, this is actually a wraparound cover on the issue, and it depicts Morpheus either dark-skinned or just kind of in the dark. Yeah, in shadow. Kind of and in color. And he's standing in front of what are probably the spires of Baghdad, letting sand pour from one of his hands. Okay, so on the first page, we open with a very ornate kind of pattern, abstract. Yeah, we have a full page of narration here, basically. Yeah, and the narration is an Islamic oath. Yeah, it's telling us right off that this is a tale being told to us. Setting us in a frame. Oh, yeah, I guess it's that as well. Not just an oath. In the name of Allah, the compassionate, the all-merciful, I tell my tale. For there is no god but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. From the page, and we are told this is a tale of Baghdad in the time of Harun al-Rashid. Now, Harun al-Rashid is a historical person. He ruled the Abbasid Caliphate, which covered basically all of the Arabian Peninsula and some chunks of Asia and North Africa from 786 to 809, and he also figures in plenty of legends, including some of the Thousand and One Nights tales. Oh, okay. Sort of a historical figure that made his way into legend. Yeah, and we're told that there was no city like Baghdad and no court like Harun al-Rashid's. Um, it gathered the greatest and wisest people in the world around him, including great teachers of all three of the people of the book. The Hebrews, the Christians, and the Muslims. Right. We get quite a bit here on how wonderful his court and his palace were. A section on the Palace of Wisdom, a section on the Palace of Pleasure, a section on the Palace of Wonders. Yeah. What does it say about 180 years? Oh, it's been 180 years since the Prophet Muhammad. Right, okay. And I want to point out that on the Palace of Wonders page, there is a mechanical woman who is pretty clearly Maria from Metropolis. Oh, okay. I wrote down that the palace was the Palace of Wonders because it was full of magicians and androids. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like the Enterprise. Yeah, well, there's no magicians on the Enterprise. (laughs) I mean, not even Scotty. I think Jordy feels like a magician most of the time. I think Scotty would make that comparison sooner. No, it's not magic data. I've told you before. I just have special glasses. (laughs) Did you ever notice that, like, superpowers are a big part of Star Trek? Mr. Spock is crazy strong, telepathic, got the Vulcan nerve pinch. Data's got all kinds of crazy powers. Jordy has x-ray eyes. Odo can turn into anything. Yeah. There should be, like, a Justice League Star Trek. Yeah, it's like a really, like, low-key, realistic sci-fi show. Well, okay. Let's not even get started into whether it's realistic, but you take my meaning. And then, also, the crew is full of guys with superpowers. Yeah. It's full of guys with superpowers. You don't get to see a lot of people using their full capabilities, because the, the Federation is so strong that they could just smash most of their enemies to smithereens without any trouble if they wanted to. 
so most of the time most of the episodes are about like ethical quandaries of like what should we do not what can we do yeah yeah which is i think is very frustrating to some people you know who just want to see like action and adventure right yeah except for like the dominion war it doesn't really function as an adventure show well you get the borg war yeah in next generation and the dominion war in deep space nine but that kind of writing was already kind of against type for star trek at the time that they started doing it yeah anyways (laughs) so (laughs) we're talking about a comic book yeah i mean star trek comic books do exist but who wants to read them for those were the days of wonders, and Harun al-Rashid was a wise king. When he sat in judgment, even his sages were astonished at the sagacity of his verdicts. Under I'm pretty sure this... that word's pronounced Sega City. Isn't that the, the racing game with the cars? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> it sounds like a thing. Under him the city prospered, and the whole of Arabia flowered and blossomed. But Harun al-Rashid was troubled in his soul. And that's where we get our title, under this intense zoom on Harun al-Rashid's eyes. Looking troubled. I thought maybe those were supposed to be Morpheus's eyes, because, you know, they're so big and black and the center part is so small and bright. Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, he used to sometimes like to pull an Augustus and go out into the city with only his vizier Jafar and his executioner Masrur to accompany him. Yeah, in disguise they would sample the delights and the wares of Baghdad, and they always came home with great stories. Yeah, that's important. Because there's a thousand stories in the Baghdad city. (laughs) We get a page here covering a bunch of these stories, just in in brief. Just, here are some cool things that happened. We're not going to get the whole story. This is something that Neil Gaiman likes to do, is just throw like, there's a cool story! about this yeah and you never see the story yeah he sometimes is just like here's a neat idea that i don't feel like really fleshing out so i'm just gonna say here's a neat idea you know the only flight of the winged horse made all of glass but for its eyes which were bone right also that looks like jughead oh (laughs) this guy is wearing a crown but it's an actual crown not like a weird 50s hat is it called a a whoopee hat I don't remember. We'll certainly have to check that out. Damn it. More (laughs) research. I do want to point out that it was then that Harun al-Rashid raised a poor beggar to the caliphate for a day of dreams. Gotta call out those dreams appearances. Yeah. Dreaming is a thing that people do. Harun stares out over the city from a balcony at midday. Incomparable, he says. But his heart was still troubled. We also learn here for the first time that this story is taking place at Ramadan. I think we could probably infer that when we saw the title on the cover. It could have been some kind of a metaphor. Yeah, I suppose you're right. But it's not. The story takes place at Ramadan. Okay. We should mention that this is the fourth issue of Distant Mirrors, which was kind of a loosely associated set of stories related to, like, the dreams of kings and emperors. We saw Robespierre. We saw Augustus. This is the fourth one. It was meant to run alongside the others, but scheduling pushed it all the way back here. Are these supposed to be a set of sad stories? You could say that? Because Despair's domain is full of mirrors. Uh, that's a good point. The Robespierre story was pretty alright, though. I mean, Robespierre got decapitated. Joanna Constantine made it out. Yeah, fuck that guy. (laughs) So here we meet Harun al-Rashid's wife, Zubeda. Yeah, she can see that he's troubled. She tries to comfort him. He says, I thank you, my lady, my queen, but I must decline. And then Jafar comes in, tries to comfort him, 
with stories that they could either go out into the city and seek them or bring storytellers into the palace. Yeah, but he also gets turned down. Look at our city, says Harun al-Rashid. Is it not wonderful? Will there ever be another like it? If Allah wills it. Ah, but the will of Allah is not for man to know. Leave me, he says. I want to point out that Jafar also offers to share some wine with him. But Harun al-Rashid points out that it is Ramadan, which means they should be fasting from dawn till dusk, and furthermore that the Prophet has spoken against wine. Right, they're not supposed to drink alcohol at all. Right. So, so obviously not that observant. Jafar? Well, yeah, I guess. And Harun al-Rashid here, as he's portrayed. Yeah, there's going to be a moment here where he actually breaks the fasting taboo of Ramadan. We haven't got to that yet. The great poet Ishak comes to him, but Harun says, Art and pretty words will not lift his soul. And then he asks, Has there ever been a city like my city, or a people like my people? No, great king. Ambassadors come here from the ends of the earth to see this miracle, and they return to their kings, saying, We have seen the perfect city. There can be none like it. And their kings are then dissatisfied with their own small fiefs and domains, for they know that never can they compare to Baghdad, the jewel of cities. This is so, but all things pass. Leave me, I need no poets. Yeah, so he's looking out on the greatest city on earth, and it's, by the way, it's dark now. The stars are up. He's been staring at Baghdad all day. Yeah, and Baghdad looks incredible. The art in this issue is fantastic. It's this really dense woodcut style. Yeah, just lots of lush detail here. Also, we get a lot of kind of ornate borders around certain panels. Mm -hmm. It's just so intricate and beautiful. Yeah, I think you had commented at some point that there wasn't actually a ton of plot in this story. Yeah, spoiler alert, there's not a ton of plot in this issue. Yeah, but it's just dense with imaginative, provocative detail. Sure. So, now that he's alone, Harun al-Rashid takes a golden key from around his neck, and he starts descending into the depths of his palace. He passes the harem, he passes the dungeons, he passes the oubliettes, each of which get a panel of details. He passes through a black door that opens to the key. Right. The black door is the first door. And he continues to descend. He goes down past the place where he can hear the voices of all those he's killed. And then he comes to a bronze door. And the bronze door is the second door. He opens that with the key and he continues down. He passes through a labyrinth with his eyes closed, counting steps in the dark. Do you know what this reminded me a lot of is the cat's journey to see Morpheus? Oh, okay. You know how the cat passes through places of spirits and places where it forgets what it was? Yeah. You know, Neil Gaiman is a master storyteller, and he knows that one of the best story structures is the journey. You know, you put people on a journey and you can have them encounter whatever weird stuff you want them to along the way. Yeah, and there's an interesting parallel as he's sort of descending into the depths of his palace. This fantastic, impossible palace that he has is kind of like the pathway into dreams, kind of like traveling into a dream world. To mention it once again, it's been called out many times on this podcast, but probably the magnum opus of Neil Gaiman's road trip stories is American Gods. Right. So he comes to a wooden door, and this is, this is a tiny little door that he has to crawl through. He's in a crawl space already at this point. Yeah, um, an unadorned wooden door. And the wooden door is the third door. He passes through a vast treasure vault. There's a room inside it containing nothing but eggs. 
Lots of eggs looking pretty precarious, the way they're stacked up there. Yeah, there's also a room full of fire. Yeah. In the room full of eggs, we get a diversion here, where we learn that the egg of the rook, which is the giant bird that eats elephants, is stored there. He passes by this giant egg, much taller than he is. And the other egg of the phoenix, because the phoenix lays two eggs, one white, one black. From the white hatches the reborn phoenix, but from the black, who knows? No one. No one knows. What do you mean, no one knows? (laughs) (laughs) Repeatedly, we are told that as he passes through all of these wonders, his gaze does not flicker. So we know that Harun al-Rashid knows what he is after. Yeah, he's walking very intently towards his destination. And he comes to a door of fire. And the door made of fire is the fourth door. And this door, too, he opened with the golden key. There is nothing in this room but a glass ball resting on a satin pillow. We see mists swirling within this glass ball, and there is a seal set into the glass. But we're not going to find out what the ball is quite yet. He's going to pick the ball up and take it with him. He carried it with care, and his breath was shallow and rapid. So he takes the secret paths through the palace, passes all the way back up through the palace. He's gone down, now he's going up, and he gets to the top of the palace, through the secret paths whose builders he slew to keep his secrets. Sounds like kind of a bastard. He does have dungeons and oubliettes, and he had to assassinate the head of his bodyguards, and he had to bury some of the builders so that the palace would have secret ways. So, King has to be a little bit ruthless. Yeah, and then he uh, he comes to a hidden door, a brick door, and he touches one brick lightly, though it looked like every other, and the wall swung aside. And Harun al-Rashid stepped gently onto the highest rooftop of his palace. Yeah, and we see this great, I think this is nearly a half-page panel of the night lights of Baghdad, and we're told that it's just the most amazing sight you could imagine. And fantastic blaze of stars and comets. Yeah, I thought some of it was supposed to be the city lights as well, but maybe not. Maybe it's just the sky. And once there... He summons the King of Dreams. Yeah. He calls out to the King of Dreams as one king to another, demanding that he appear and in an unthreatening form. But there is no reply. And so now it's revealed what the sphere was all about. This is the globe of Suleiman, King of the Hebrews, which contains 9,009 Ifrit's jinn and demons, which he sealed up during his life. What 9,000?! There's no way that can be right. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> and if the Dream King doesn't come, Harun al-Rashid says he will smash the globe. He notes that the Ifrits have sworn to destroy our work and our minds and our dreams. So maybe that's a significant threat to Morpheus. Right. He has enemies in that ball. Yeah. So that's blackmail. Yeah, yeah. You're just adding to the bit of a bastard list at this point? I'm just... Listen. I'm offended. That's blackmail. How dare he? Again, there is no reply. We see his eye narrow in extreme close-up as he mutters very quietly, Very well. And he lifts up the globe, and we see him sort of struggling to lift this... Yeah, he's he's real wrestling with it. Seemingly that big a globe, well, it's definitely bigger than his head, and he picks it up over his head and he hurls it. In any case, we get a whole wordless page here of him just heaving this fucking orb. And oh man... Those demons inside are all ready to get out. Yeah, we see this swarm of demons in this sphere getting closer and closer and extreme close-up on the demons, delighted at what's about to happen. 
and inches from the ground, a pair of pale hands catches the globe. Interception! Uh, so <laughs> It's a pick six. Morpheus with the pick six. <laughs> you have called me, and I have come. It's Morpheus, of course, in a beautiful black robe adorned with stars and flowers. Are you, then, the lord of sleep, the prince of stories, he to whom Allah has given dominion over that which is not, and was not, and shall never be? You know whom you have called, Harun al-Rashid. Wine! Wine for our visitor! There's no one there. You fucking came through a secret passage. I guess his voice carries? Morpheus is just floating, you know, a couple feet off the edge of the palace roof here. Yep. Face to face with Harun al-Rashid. Actually, he's a little above him because he's taller. Yep. He points out that it's Ramadan, and apparently the sun is rising now because it's time that they should be fasting. And furthermore, the prophet has spoken against wine. And are you of the faith, my pale companion? I am of all faiths in my fashion, Harun al-Rashid, and I have no wish to take wine with you. Yeah, fucking stone cold shut down. Because you're being an asshole. Yeah, Morpheus is pretty cool that way, though. <laughs> That's kind of a way in which Morpheus is cool, though, is like he is making an effort to respect local customs. He's usually not terribly respectful toward all people pretty much ever. Oh, I just meant saying, like, I have no wish to take wine with you. It's like, it's fucking brutal. Oh, yeah. Well, he's like, he's not going to let Rashid forget that Rashid is a very powerful king of men. And he, Morpheus, is something bigger than that. Right. You're okay as mortals go. But this is the fucking dream king you're talking to. Yeah, but he, he has a certain respect for gods, perhaps, because they are dreams of a fashion. So Morpheus asks why he doesn't just leave, taking this ball of nuisances with him. And also, I might add, taking the recollection of being summoned, peremptorily, as one might summon a steward. I am no steward, O king, and I mislike summonings. I have a scary Morpheus face cast in shadow and a bit of a nervous Harun al-Rashid face here. So he opens up his starry cloak, which looks especially impressive in this rendering of it. And he puts the orb inside and simply makes it disappear. Yeah, this orb, which is like a little bit wider around than Morpheus is, he puts it in his cloak, closes the cloak, it's gone. It's gone. Now, Harun tells a tale of a fisherman who captured a genie. In the tale, he talked the genie back into the bottle. But the genie was foolish and boastful and lonely. I am none of these things. You're not! None of those things. <laughs> We've seen some compelling evidence for Lonely, and holy shit have we seen Boastful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not foolish. Somewhat foolish, though. <laughs> Not foolish. But when it comes to human emotions, kind of foolish. I mean, am I wrong? No, he's a, little, uh, he's a little out of touch. Yeah, there you go. You have called me here, Haroon. It is unwise to summon what you cannot dismiss. This is, of course, before the first issue and the stuff that goes on with summoning in that issue. But the idea that Morpheus doesn't like being called and doesn't like being bound is already part of his character. Right. So Harun says he's called Dream here to bargain. Morpheus suggests if we're going to bargain, that's really the business of the marketplace. So let's head to the souk. He claps his hands and servants appear. In my sleeping quarters is a casket that was my father's and his father's before him. Bring it to me. Is it labeled? <laughs> they don't know <laughs> when they look at the caskets which one fucking belonged to who. Maybe it's the oldest looking casket. Maybe they have to ask one of the really old servants whether it was here before. 
it seems like it's going to take some time. Yeah, probably. They, they were clearly hiding in inaudible range of the clap. Right. The clapping, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> of the clapping. And so they probably could have heard him if he yelled, Wine! Also. But maybe they were told not to interrupt unless there was clapping. Okay, so they bring the casket. They have apparently found the casket, Eric. Yeah, they didn't seem to have a lot of trouble. <laughs> well, we don't know how much time passed between these two panels. It's bright daylight now. <laughs> <laughs> Inside there is a plain brown rug Harun says a magic word three times A word that we don't get to hear Well, There's an Arabic writing here So maybe if we could read Arabic we could read it Yes, he steps onto it carefully Even reverently Although it's not a prayer carpet And on the third repetition The carpet rose slowly and silently into the air Glittering faintly I can show you the world <laughs> So he's taken Morpheus with him on a, on magic, a magic carpet, carpet ride. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what it's what happens in the story. It's just it's what happens. There's no other yeah, way to put it. And there is and there is shining shimmering splendor here as the city of Baghdad, the marketplace as they fly over it is again totally gorgeous. We get two more words and then Disney sues us. <laughs> uh, look at my city, Dream Lord. I see it. And even Morpheus, the way he's sitting, the posture here, as he looks about him, he even he looks impressed by this. Yeah. He's got his legs dangling over the edge of the magic carpet. This is pretty cool. It is a city of marvels, of wonders. These are the days of wonders. It is my city. I am responsible for it. So they descend into the marketplace, and Harun orders the carpet to wait high above until they have need of it. Yeah, and wow, what a marketplace. We get... This is more than a half a page. This is a full page splash, as a matter of fact, because there's a little inset here, but under it is more of the marketplace. Yeah. Amazing wow. carpets, lamps, colorful birds, all kinds of people dealing. Here's an ape possibly going to be sold to Mr. Lachance. <laughs> right. It's a real gorilla. There's also swords of all lengths and sizes. Yeah. Just this. This is a beautiful page. The merchants of the city try to get their attention. Each one's wares are accompanied by a wild tale of how they found them. Yeah, and he has no time for these tales. Harun buys a few grapes and plums. <laughs> I, also, I thought it was funny how he said, uh, I'll give you a durham for these miserable grapes. Yeah, and the guy haggles with him how he'll never accept anything less than three because they're the best grapes, and Harun offers two and they accept two. <laughs> well, he's super happy to get two, as a matter of fact. Yeah. There is, as it happens, a tale that accompanies these plums. I'm sure there is, and I thank you for it. But for now, I have certain matters to attend to. That was pretty deft. A grape dream king? In Ramadan, between dawn and dusk? It is no matter. Look around, you dream king. What do you see? I see a remarkable place. Indeed. It is a land of miracles. Will you buy it from me? There's the big reveal. Harun explains that this is the greatest city, and the perfect age. How long can it last? How long will people remember? He's seen the world, he says, the ruins of once great civilizations. This is as good as it's going to be, isn't it? Right, he knows that it can't last. It may be so, but Allah alone knows all, indeed. Oh, I noted here the ruined statue in the desert. Wondered if that was like a visual reference to Shelley's Ozymandias. Oh yeah, I think so. That's what I thought of. I propose to give you this city, my city. I submit that you purchase it from me. Take it into dreams. 
And in exchange? In exchange, I want it never to die. To live forever. Can you do this thing? Morpheus thinks for a couple of panels. After a fashion, I can. Harun asks what is needed to make this happen. Is there some grand deed? No. All you need to do is tell your people. They follow you, after all, and yours is the dream. Very well. Harun al-Rashid addresses the people, announcing that he has given the golden age of Baghdad to the one who stands at his side. It is his forever, providing that as long as mankind lasts, our world is not forgotten. And as he pronounces these words, we get five of the greatest panels of comic storytelling ever. The enormous spouting fountain behind him eventually kind of lowers itself to a more realistic size, and the magic carpet crashes to the dirt. Now an ordinary rug. And as we turn the page, now we find Harun sleeping upon it, dreaming. He's awakened by the executioner, Masrur. Great king, you were gone from the palace. We have been looking for you. What happened? Why did you come here to the marketplace? I... I do not know, Masrur. I had a dream, I think, but already it is fading. He can't remember why he's here. Masrur suggests it could be heatstroke. Leaving the carpet behind in the dust, they head for the palace. And on this page, the art has completely changed. Gone are the wild colors and the beautiful spires. The buildings are mundane now, desert brown. Yeah, the city looks kind of run down. It's not as fabulous as it used to be. As they're walking, they see Morpheus carrying a large bottle. A large bottle with inside a fantastic city, presided over by little Harun al-Rashid on top of a flying carpet. Most ingenious of devising and execution. Did you construct it? Is it for sale? I did not construct it. It was given to me, and it is no longer for sale. There's no going back on this deal. Harun looks on the city a little sadly. Masrur urges him to return to the palace, and they walk on, leaving Morpheus behind. We get a panel on his inscrutable eyes. And then, on the last page of the issue, we go forward in time. Baghdad is now a war-torn city. And that is how they say it occurred. But Allah alone knows all. An old man has just finished telling this story to a little boy with a crutch serving for one bad leg. Kid wants to know what happened to al-Rashid and the old city of Baghdad. But for another tale, he'll need more money or cigarettes. Maybe tomorrow. Yeah, and he picks his way through the rubble and the ruins. This issue would have come out around the time of the first Gulf War, right? Yeah, the first Gulf War was actually going on during the Season of Mist story. It was kind of a plot point. So yeah, this is not long after that conflict at all. Yeah, and, and as we can see here, this this is a, just a very mournful page showing us what recent events had made of what was once the greatest city on Earth. What Baghdad has become in the real world. But how did it work? The bargain. How could the city last? Go home. His question unanswered. Hassan stumbles homeward, picking his way in a series of child shortcuts across the bomb sites and the rubble of Baghdad. And though his stomach hurts, for fasting is easy this Ramadan and food is hard to come by, his head is held high and his eyes are bright, for behind his eyes are towers and jewels and jinn, carpets and rings and wild afrits, kings and princes and cities of brass. And he prays as he walks, cursing his one weak leg the while, prays to Allah, who made all things, that somewhere in the darkness of dreams abides the other Baghdad, that can never die, and the other egg of the phoenix. But Allah alone knows all. Yeah! Okay. Well, for context... That is my favorite one-issue story of the run. Hmm, okay. 
I'm trying to think what my favorite one issue story might be. Maybe the Dream of a Thousand Cats. Hmm, that's a good one. That's a good one too. <laughs> yeah, this one, you know, it's a nice little story. I certainly see the point of it, and it's certainly kind of, you know, it's good that it's good that Western artists were thinking about the ramifications of the destruction that was going on because of the Gulf War. Yeah. It's kind of threadbare plot-wise for 32 pages. I see what you mean. And it's definitely a story that lives in the details. Right. You could have told this story in a page. It's all of the fantastic doors that he has to go through, all of the wonders of his palace, and all of the wonders of the city. Yeah. That's where the story lives and breathes. And that's what makes it special, because... If we didn't have all of that, then we would never understand what the dream of Baghdad means. Yeah, it's true, but you reach a point of diminishing returns. I see. Where you can elaborate on it more and more, and, you know, any detail that you add, things are going to be demonstrably less rich if you take that detail out. But, at the same time, we have a lot of pages of Harun al-Rashid being a fairly unsympathetic character mm. and one who is we don't know what to make of him we know that he's troubled about something and it kind of takes too long to find out what okay yeah i mean i guess that's fair i just thought that the fascination of finding out what was going to be behind the next door and the forward momentum of his journey through the palace kept the story going for a long time it felt propulsive to me yeah i mean it's a quick enough read, but I just found myself frustrated by it early on. Okay. I think it's not that it's so hard to get through 32 pages as it is that this is a slow starting story, and it's frustrating when you know you have 32 pages to get through. <laughs> and, I see. And you don't, doesn't seem to be going anywhere for a while. You talked about Neil Gaiman's interest in the destruction that had gone on in present-day Baghdad. It's maybe a little uncomfortable that he's a white guy writing about Arabian legend. Yeah, and it is kind of full of stereotypes. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know, what can you do? If you write about Norse legends, I guess as Neil Gaiman did, it's going to be full of Norse stereotypes, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think on the one hand, it's a great story. It's well told. It expresses the power of dreams and tales. I think P. Craig Russell's storybook art is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It is at least exoticism in that it depicts the way the Middle East was as this kind of storybook fantasy land. Yeah, I, I, and definitely. It, and ideally, I, I mean, I think today we all kind of recognize that the ideal thing would be for us to be exposed to this culture from an authentic source. Like Nalo Hopkinson on House of Whispers. One of the new books is House of Whispers. It's it's a house anthology like oh, like one Secrets of the and Mysteries. Yeah, Universe one of the new books. Sandman Universe. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Written by Jamaican Canadian author Nalo Hopkinson. Oh, okay. So she has quite a bit of cred in voodoo and Lola mythology. So it's like letting people of color tell their own stories, basically. Yeah. Instead of appropriating them. Right, yeah. I think there's a sort of a partial justification in the story here in that, you know, we are explicitly told that this takes place in the Baghdad of dreams and stories. Right. It is the storybook version. It is not what was real, or at least what was real anymore. Not going for historical authenticity here. Yeah, exactly. It's not the real place. Right. 
And stories are a repeated thing here. The king has storytellers. He goes into the city with his aides to hear stories. And then it comes up a third time when he's in the marketplace and everybody wants to tell him a story to accompany their wares. Right. The golden age of Baghdad is bursting with dreams and stories. Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that Rashid got what he wanted and do you think that he's happy with what he got? There's almost a, a trickster aspect to Morpheus here, particularly that last panel of him watching Rashid go. Well, I think that I think that at the end, because he has no knowledge of what happened, he might feel a little bit screwed over. Mm-hmm. But I think that his own personal memory of the city is something he would have gladly parted with to get what he was really worried about, which was the city's immortality. Right. The lasting memory of the city. Right. And he gets to see it. Yeah, he gets a look. He gets a he look gets at it. He gets a fleeting glance at, uh, at the perfect age. Right. So, yeah, good book. Well, now it's time for a segment I like to call, Hey, Eric, read this, where I blindside Eric with a more recent Vertigo comic. Aw, oh, shit. <laughs> what do you got? I have here Eric's birthday present what? unopened. What the hell? Oh, my goodness. I like that the sender wrote Fragile Do Not Bend on this. Alright. This is very well shipped. It was shipped very well protected. Which means that it's going to take a minute. Get this bad, bad boy open. What have we here? Lady Constantine. Oh. Two, issue it's three. It's a limited run. This is the whole thing. The entire limited series of Lady Constantine. Well, okay, should I read all four of these right now? No, but maybe we should read and talk about the first one. So, I have two comics for you as well. <laughs> wow! <laughs> it's um, a comic book Christmas. Yeah, it's a, it's a comic book bonanza. Beautiful time-lapse footage. Okay, so that was Hellblazer Special, Lady Constantine, number one, by Andy Diggle, with art by Goran Suzuka. And colors by Patricia Mulvihill. From 2003. Tell us about it. It was pretty interesting. It starts with a long segment of an unlucky ship stumbling into a wreck. And inside they find this mysterious box. Only supposed to be a three-hour tour. Uh, Right. The box looks like a cubic gate, if you ever... Play Dungeons and Dragons. That's, I never have. That's the magic item that it is. Okay. Kind of reminded me of a Tesseract. Or a oh, yeah. Cosmic Cube. Yeah. It was definitely a cube, anyway. Yeah, it was cubic. It was, like, chained up from all directions so that it didn't touch the floor of the hold. Yeah. It, it was weird. slide into something and pop open. Oh, is that what that is? Okay. Anyway, then we meet Lady Constantine. We are told... That this is 1785, so it's before her adventures in the French Revolution, which we've already seen. Yeah, Joanna Constantine, worth mentioning since we haven't yet this episode. She is the ancestor of John Constantine, and a lot like him in a lot of ways, but she actually appeared in the Sandman comic as a supporting character. Yeah, they say this is a Hellblazer special, but we've never seen Lady Constantine in Hellblazer. But by 2003, maybe that had changed. Right. She has a little sister who we didn't know about. We never got the little sister's name, but she always calls her Mouse. Right. Uh, and she's pretending to be a boy. But yeah, she's she's really broke and just kind of barely making ends meet when she gets called upon by the British government. She thinks to do spy shit for them. Mm-hmm. 
but it turns out that they want her to retrieve the box. And specifically, it's the interventionist branch, which has a guy named Bramble and another guy named Tweed. Huh. I want to point out this bit here, that she tried to trick the landlord by selling him a wedding ring, which she had gilded. It was a brass wedding ring coated in gold, and he describes this scam as a fawny rig. Right. That will later become the name of her house, which will later become Roderick Burgess's house, which is currently Blackwood Manor, where Lady Blackwood lives. Yeah, the house at Witchcross. And Lady Blackwood is the villain. She wants the box, too, presumably for evil purposes. Oh, and Lady Constantine is told that it'll be the end of the world if anyone manages to open the box. Yeah, she's told don't open it, which I noted down because it means that she'll probably open it at some point. Could be, could be. So she has two friends. One of them is Jack, who seems to be the swamp thing. Yeah, she like consults this dead dude for advice and he turns out to be the swamp thing. Not the swamp thing that we know, but the swamp thing of another era. Yeah. Or not the incarnation of the swamp thing that we know, since the swamp thing isn't really Alec Holland. Yeah. I guess it is the same Swamp Thing. This Swamp Thing also believes he's a dude, because he wants... Right, it's the same Swamp Thing, but suffering under a different misconception. (laughs) Yeah, because he wants the name of the person that killed him as payment. Right. She has a friend named Rafe McAllister, who has a ship called the Jezebel, which she enlists to take her to wherever it was in the Arctic Circle, where this box has been spotted. And at the end of the issue, she meets Dorian Blackwood, who tells her to abandon her quest, and she says no, and he's about to shoot her. (laughs) Yeah, so Lady Blackwood has these, like, golems. I guess they're homunculi that she made. Right. And they're out scouring for the box. Yeah. Based on their relative ages, he kind of looks like he's just her brother, but apparently he's not. He's her creation. Yeah, she wants the homunculi to call her mother. Yeah. So... All in all, a pretty good comic book. We've got covers by Phil Noto here. They're pretty good. The art is the style of art that I enjoy. It reminded me a lot of, like, 90s X-Men art. It's kind of simplified. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little bit cartoony, but still quite detailed. We get a lot of detail in the apocalyptic box. That looks pretty cool. Yeah. People have different looking faces. You can tell who people are by their faces which is nice. Good? Yeah, pretty good read. Pretty good hook. This is the first issue of a four-issue series, which was my birthday present, and I'll be finishing it. So you are interested to read more Lady Constantine? Yeah, yeah, or at least I better pretend that I am. (laughs) That's sort of what I was afraid of. No, it's fine. It's good. It's a good comic book. Well, our next Sandman episode takes us to World's End. But first, join us next week. Garth Ennis is writing Hellblazer, and it's becoming a dangerous habit. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to have your email vertiguys at gmail.com you can reach us on twitter at vertiguys you can reach me at blankcast sean we also have a facebook page facebook.com slash vertiguys if you'd like to tell your friends about us that would be great if you'd like to leave us a rating or a review on whatever podcast listening software you choose why that's like telling your friends about us on the internet right 
It's telling your friends about us times internet. <laughs> it's unlimited. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Point of view, no one to tell us no, where to go, or say we're only dreaming. Okay, so this is a nitpick. Civil War is a very good superhero movie. Uh huh. But when Tony Stark and Peter Parker are in the apartment, and he asks him why he's Spider-Man, and Peter Parker says. When you can do the things I can do, and you don't, and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. And Tony says, I get it, you don't like bullies. Good sentiment, Tony, but that's not what he said at all. <laughs> fucking say that. Uh, yeah, well, you know, most of what comes out of Tony Stark's mouth doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> You're arguing that it's consistent with the portrayal of Tony Stark as full of shit. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs>